Barry. Thank you, praise team, for leading us this morning. Uh, good morning, College Hills. We are glad that you are here on a nice, crisp fall morning. I hope you're enjoying these mornings as much as I am. It's one of my uh, favorite times of the year. It's such a, a wonderful opportunity for us to gather together this morning. And if this is your first Sunday with us, if you're a guest, let me just say a quick word to you. We would love for you to stick around after class and after worship and get to know us. We have a lot of classes uh, throughout the building. We have children's worship and children's classes. We have classes for students and a lot of classes for adults. If you're not able to stay with us and try out a class today, I would encourage you to grab one of these cards right here and just fill out your information. We would love to have a record of it. I'll be in the back. You can give it to me after service, or you can just drop it in one of the black boxes by the door. We'd love to have a record of your attendance and reach out to you and get to know you a little bit better. Quick update, just to let you know, Van announced this on Wednesday night, and I wanted to remind our church of the decision that our leadership made over the last week uh, to send $5,000 to the Gulf Coast Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Uh, many of you are aware of the, the tragedy that took place on the coast over the last couple of weeks, and so our leadership uh, decided to help in that way. Disaster relief and a lot of other relief efforts are using Gulf Coast Church of Christ as kind of a home base, and so we sent that money to them this past week as a way to support them. We want to thank you for your prayers for them and for your generosity so that we could uh, make a donation like that to them. Uh, and then finally, because he's here this morning, uh, I want to highlight John Grant, who's right there. Um, if he wants, yeah, one hand there. Um, we are about to enter into a season of helping those in our community who are homeless. Uh, and there's a ministry uh, that started many years ago with this church called Compassionate Hands. Um, and John is the executive director of that ministry. And so if you're interested in helping in any way, uh, College Hills' night is Monday evenings and Tuesday mornings. And so those are kind of our two days. Uh, but John is open to any and all volunteers if those days don't work for you. So if you're interested in helping in that ministry um, or finding out more about that ministry, see John. He's got some handouts, and he would love to, to let you know how you can get involved. That runs from the beginning of December until the beginning of March of next year. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1 this morning. Um, if you remember, last week Kevin kicked off a new series focusing on the book of Jonah. Uh, and today we're going to be focusing on the first three verses where we read these words. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. We're grateful for the gift of community, grateful for the change in seasons and the ways in which it reminds us of your sustenance and provision. That we're grateful for your word that continues to speak. And I pray this morning that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching, and that you would speak a word through me that's true to who you are and who you're calling us to be. And God, I pray that you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and be transformed by it more into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
it's an odd way to start a book, is it not? This is kind of a strange beginning to a book of the Bible. The beginning of the book of Jonah is kind of like we're stepping up onto the porch of a house, and before we enter into that great big book, that house that we called Jonah, there is this loose board in the porch, and it kind of trips us up some, or at least it should. These few verses should trip us up, because while there's some things about them that are very familiar, there's a few things about them that are kind of unfamiliar that should cause us to stop and pause and raise some questions. The familiar part comes right at the very beginning of the book, the first two verses where we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. As you can tell by seeing those other scripture references, the beginning of the book of Jonah is strikingly similar to the books that you find around it. Books like Hosea and Joel and Micah, where there's almost an identical introduction. And the reason why there's almost an identical introduction, because it's signaling to us that we're about to enter into a book of prophecy. A prophetic book or a prophet was someone who simply spoke on behalf of God. The word of the Lord comes to a prophet and then that prophet speaks a word. And so we're expecting a word to be spoken by Jonah. At least that's the expectation. That's what's familiar about this. And as we know about a lot of prophetic books, it's going to be a difficult word that Jonah has to speak. Often, prophets, when they speak on behalf of God, are not speaking easy words, they're speaking challenging words. And the challenging word that Jonah is intended to speak is to this town of Nineveh. Not a town, but a city, a great city. This great city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire were some bad dudes. They were violent, they were vicious, they would go in and conquer a town and do awful things as they plundered that town, expanding their territory. This violent, vicious, Gentile nation, Jonah, this Jew, is intended to go and is supposed to go and speak a hard word of repentance against them. At least, that's the expectation that's set up in these first couple of verses, and this is, is the familiar part. But then we get to the unfamiliar part, the part that should trip us up, where we read this in the very next verse. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Here is where we get tripped up a little bit, or at least we should, for two reasons. One, typically when you read a prophetic book, there is the word of the Lord that comes to the prophet, and then... The majority of the rest of the book is going to be a series of prophetic statements. But with Jonah, we don't get that. We don't get a lot of statements. What we get is a, a storyline of four chapters telling a story instead of offering prophetic statements. And so that's a bit unfamiliar when it comes to prophetic books. And, and the second thing, and kind of more to the point, the thing that probably catches our attention, is that Jonah is told to go 
to Nineveh. And Jonah goes in the exact opposite direction. As you may or may not know, Jonah was intended to go one way, but he ends up trying to go in the complete opposite direction. Not to Nineveh, not to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, but in the exact opposite direction to the, to the furthest known point of the known world at that time. And that should raise some questions for us. That should, should trip us up a little bit and cause us to ponder, what is going on with this book? What kind of book is this? This book that seems to be a prophetic book, but instead of getting statements, we get a story. It raises some questions about God. If God is this God who calls faithful people, then, then why is he calling someone who's obviously trying to be disobedient? But maybe most of all, it raises some questions about Jonah. It raises some questions about this person who was intending to go one way, as you can see on the map, but he goes in the exact opposite direction, very, very far from where he's intended to go. And that raises this question about Jonah that I want us to consider this morning. Why? Does Jonah try to run from God? Why is he trying to run away from God? And the reason why I want to zoom in on that question this morning is, is because I think these three verses raise that question more than any of the other questions that we just raised. And the reason I say that is twofold. I think that the way these three verses are structured highlight this question for us. And, and what I mean by that is, one... If you notice how Nineveh gets mentioned once, in contrast to Tarshish getting mentioned three times, it's almost like the author of this book is trying to draw our attention and tilt the scales towards the place that Jonah is not supposed to go. Nineveh gets used once, and then it's Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. The second reason why I think this question is most pressing when we read these first few verses is because Twice in verse 3, this phrase gets used that Jonah is trying to run away from the presence of the Lord. So twice in three verses, twice in one verse, we're told he's trying to get away from the Lord. He's trying to flee from the Lord. And so when we just stop in these first few verses, this is the question that we have to ask. Why? Why is Jonah trying to run from the God. What's going on with Jonah? And like any good story, this question does not get resolved quickly or necessarily easily. And what I mean by that is we got to read through the book before we actually get to an answer for this question. This question, in other words, is kind of supposed to just stick with us. Linger with us as we move through this book, as we read about this great storm that Jonah's about to be engulfed by. Why is he running from God? As these sailors throw him overboard, we ask the question, why is he trying to get away from God? And even as he's swallowed up by the great fish, why is this guy running from God? And even when he gets a second chance to go back to Nineveh, 
and he actually takes that opportunity in chapter 3, this question from chapter 1 is still kind of supposed to linger with us. Why is Jonah trying to run from God? Resolve to this question isn't going to happen until we get to chapter 4. What happens in chapter 3, as I just mentioned, is that Jonah goes and he actually preaches this prophetic sermon to Nineveh. It's a five-word sermon. And what happens in Nineveh is that they respond to this difficult word. They repent. They turn of their ways. They're so serious about their repentance that the people don't just fast and cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes, but they even have their animals do it. Now, you know that it's serious when people start making their animals repent along with them. This is a serious repentance from these people. And so what does God do? God relents. God decides not to punish them. And that is how chapter 3 ends. And then we get to chapter 4, and we're told the answer to our question. But this, what we just read about, the people repenting and God relenting, was very displeasing to Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. Jonah tells us why he runs in chapter 1 at the beginning. Jonah runs away from God because of God's nature. More specifically, Jonah knew God to be a God of grace and mercy and Jonah did not want the city of Nineveh to experience that grace and mercy. Jonah had experienced something in his own life about the gracious nature of God, but he didn't want that gracious nature to be extended to those violent, vicious, ungodly Assyrians. And if we thought we had some questions at the beginning of this book, we definitely have some questions now because this confession of Jonah raises all kinds of questions for us as God's people. Questions like, is it possible to relish the grace of God in your own life and then run from the grace of God when it's extended to the lives of others? Is it possible for a person of God or people of God to desire mercy for themselves but then only want justice for them, for those people? Is it possible for someone to experience the lavish love of God in their own life and then put limits on that love when it comes to the lives of others? 
And if any of these questions stir us, if any of these questions make us uncomfortable, then I would recommend that we just close our Bible and please stop reading it. Do not read any further. Because questions like this are going to get raised again. They're going to get raised in the Gospels when Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And he tells his disciples, people of the kingdom, that if you want to be kingdom people, do not just love people like yourself, but love even your enemies. If you want to be called children of God, love those who even persecute you. Love your enemies. And then Jesus gives his rationale. Because God is a God who brings rain and sunshine on the just and the unjust. God is one who provides rain and sunshine, basic needs for both those who are righteous and unrighteous. And that raised all kinds of questions for those disciples as they're hearing this teaching for the first time. Jesus is going to raise some questions when he goes over to Luke 15 where there are these murmurings about Jesus and his ministry because he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And so what does Jesus do? He tells three parables. He tells the parable of a shepherd, a parable of a woman, and a parable of a father. These three different angles on the nature of God all communicating the same thing about who God is. God is this God who desperately seeks out those who are lost. God will turn a house upside down in order to find one lost person. God is a God who shows grace, not just the people who stay. Everything I have is yours. But also to the people who run away and return. Bring out the best calf. We're going to have a party for my boy who's home. These questions are going to get raised, maybe most pointedly, when we find ourselves back in Joppa. If you'll remember, Joppa is the city, the port town, that Jonah tried to go to before he went to Tarshish. And that word, Joppa, that location, Joppa, will not be mentioned again in Scripture until we get to Acts chapter 9. But instead of a prophet on the run... We're going to have a guy named Peter on a roof. And while he's on a roof in Joppa, Peter, the key leader of the church at this point in the book of Acts, has a vision. And the vision is so interesting. Because what he sees is he sees this large sheet coming out of heaven. And he sees all of these animals that he would have classified as unclean according to the Jewish law coming out towards him, and he hears a voice that says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter doesn't just have this vision once, he has this vision three times. It's almost as if God wanted to drive this point home, and it's almost as if God knew how difficult this message was going to be for Peter to get. But how critical it was for him to get as the key leader of this early church movement. And at first, Peter is trying to rack his brain about why can I now call these unclean animals clean? Now, why can I eat things that I once thought were not supposed to be eaten, but now I can eat them? And as he is processing that, he soon realizes that this was not a vision about animals, but this was a vision about people. 
Because in another town, a town called Caesarea, there's going to be this guy named Cornelius who also has a vision, a Gentile, a God-fearing man, who will then send people to Peter in Joppa to have him come to where he is at. And as Peter is processing all that's happening in that vision, and he's seeing the experience that he's having in front of him, and then he gets into Cornelius's household with Cornelius and his entire family. It's then that Peter actually understands because Cornelius tells Peter his vision and there's this aha moment for Peter. And Peter tells us how he makes sense of the situation. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter's realization is the most profound realization in the entire book of Acts, but it's also the most problematic because this is going to raise a lot of questions for the early church can gentile people people who are outside of our boundaries as the people of god can they too experience the grace of god can these people of of another ethnicity experience what we have experienced as god's people this god who has been merciful and gracious to us are we willing to extend that grace to others? Are we going to be the kind of movement that allows the grace of God to reach out and touch even those who were not originally a part of our movement? And these questions are why the majority of the New Testament is written. Because the thing that the writers of the New Testament keep coming back to, especially Paul, It's trying to help the early church see that Jews and Gentiles can actually live together as one church community. That they can together be the people of God. That the grace that was extended to the Jewish people is now extended to the Gentile people. But it was a hard set of questions for the church to wrestle with. It was hard for Jonah to wrestle with as he's trying to flee from Joppa. It was hard for Peter to wrestle with as he leaves Joppa. It was hard for the early church. And I think that it's still some hard questions for us today as the church to wrestle with. Or at least I think these should be hard questions for us. Because for those who first heard this scandalous message of grace extending beyond to other people, for Jonah, It made him angry. It made him so angry that he wanted to die. That's pretty angry. And for the early church, as we follow through the book of Acts, what we're going to read at the beginning of Acts chapter 15 is that there was no small debate among the early church about the incorporation of the Gentiles into the Jewish people. And no small debate is Luke's way of saying, this was a really big debate. This was a really big debate deal. It caused 
clashing between the leaders of the early church movement, Peter and Paul. This was something that the church had to keep wrestling with because it made some people in the people of God movement very angry. And so for us, it also raises some questions about how will we respond when the grace of God begins to extend to those who we may consider ungodly, but if they turn and walk towards the grace of God, are we going to be people who extend open arms and embrace them? Are we going to be people who get so angry we would rather die than to see the grace of God embrace them? This past week I was having lunch with a friend, and we were talking about the book of Jonah, but I didn't realize until after the lunch that we were talking about the book of Jonah. Because in the, in the lunch, we never said the word Jonah. We never talked about Nineveh. We never talked about Tarshish and how that's a difficult word to pronounce in a sermon. We didn't do any of that. But after the lunch, there was a story that my friend told me that kind of was like an aha moment. Because my friend who teaches Bible classes at the church where he attends was about a year ago teaching a class on grace and mercy and how the church could be a place of grace and mercy for all kinds of people. That the people were, were coming towards them, that they needed to be people who extended the grace and mercy of God to others. And so he began to kind of tease out what this practically might look like in the life of the church. And he intentionally picked some examples that made him uncomfortable. He intentionally picked some people and some groups of people that, that made him uncomfortable. And he began to kind of float these ideas to the church, this class that he was in. And he said that as he began to talk about, well, what if this person were to repent and turn from their ungodly ways? What if this group of people were to turn and want to experience the grace of God? What would it look like for us to extend them grace? And he said he kind of felt an energy shift in the room. He felt this energy shift from a nice general conversation about grace and mercy to when he was trying to say, but when the rubber hits the road... Who were we going to be as a class and as a church? And he could feel some anger coming off of people. He could feel the energy shift. And on the one hand, it was comforting to him because he kind of felt uncomfortable by the examples himself. That's why he gave them. But on the other hand, he, he felt really convicted because he knew that that's not how he should be feeling, nor should the class be feeling. That if people, no matter how far they are from God or how far we perceive them to be from God, if, if they want to follow the ways of God and experience the grace of God, then who are we to say, no, you cannot come? The grace of God has extended to us, and that's been this beautiful thing that we have experienced. But the grace of God is never intended to just be limited to us and our experience, that yes, we are to relish in it and be grateful for it. But then, when that grace begins to extend beyond us, are we going to be people who embrace or people who run away from whoever those people may be? Because that's the thing about Nineveh. We all have a Nineveh. We all have a person or a group of people that we can feel ourselves, if they were to sit in this assembly with us, it would make us deeply uncomfortable. It might even make us angry. But if those people can never become a part of us here, then that raises, or it should raise, some questions for us. 
is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry? Should I not have concern for Nineveh? Here's what I love about chapter 4. Those questions never get answered. In fact, if you read through everything that God says in chapter 4, God asks a lot of questions of, Noah, of Jonah, but he gives very few statements. And so the thing that we experienced at the beginning, even as we come to the end of the book, yeah, our questions are resolved on one level, but there's a lot of questions raised as we finish this book. Should we be angry? Is it right for us to be angry when the grace of God may extend beyond us? Should God not have concern for Nineveh? Should God not have concern for those people? May we be the people who relish in the grace that God has given us. And may be, we be the people like the father in Luke 15 when he saw from a distance that his son was on the horizon. He didn't run away from him. He ran towards him and he embraced him. And he threw him a feast and he said, welcome home. May we be those kinds of people this week. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your grace. We are humbled by the fact that you would, as we sang just before the lesson, not give up on us. You haven't given up on any of us. So God, help us to be the kinds of people who don't give up on others either. God, help us to be so rooted in your grace that we not only see it everywhere, but we're willing and we're ready to share it everywhere as well. God, help us, form us, shape us into people who look like you in all that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.